Uh, her name is Kara Tippetts. You may have heard of her. Uh, she has been blogging faithfully for the past number of years as soon as she was diagnosed and talked about the struggle in life that uh, it is to slowly die. Um, Kara uh, and her husband Jason, they are planting a church in Colorado and uh, in Colorado Springs, as a matter of fact. They're 38 years old. They have four children. And when she began her blog, which is just simply titled Mundane Faithfulness, there were only a few people listening. Now there are hundreds of thousands of people that are reading her journey through this stage of life. Uh, She uh, hit the national stage when she... Uh, wrote an open letter to a young woman who had decided to allow her life to be taken through assisted suicide. She wrote to Brittany Maynard months ago, suffering is not the absence of goodness. It is not the absence of beauty, but perhaps it can be a place where true beauty can be known. In your choosing your own death, you are robbing those that love you with such tenderness the opportunity of meeting you in your last moments and extending you love in your last breaths. It's pretty remarkable that God has given her an opportunity to look at the human soul and not be somebody who's talking about it from the outside. This is a woman talking about it from the very position that she is forwarding. In the New York Times, Ross Dutat wrote, the future of assisted suicide debate may depend in part on whether Tippett's case for the worth of what can seem like pointless suffering can be made either without her theological perspective or by a liberalism more open to metaphysical arguments than the left is today. See, in her case, she is uh, contending and her family has announced this week that she's very close to dying. That looks like it is inevitable this, well, this week sometime. Uh, She's making the case that because the scriptures have given God the right to be the author of life and that Jesus is himself God and himself suffered for an ultimately good purpose, that there is good reason for someone to endure what could be a painful, long death. I have to say, I think it is unlikely that anyone apart from seeing Christ's meaningful suffering and experiencing real life in him, it's unlikely that they would ever embrace such a radical concept. Why would you? And it's not the only radical concept that Jesus has called us to. He's called us to sacrificial giving. He's called us to sacrificial living. He's called us to radical moral absolutes. And if you don't really believe that he is who he said he was, if you don't really believe that he is God reigning on high and will, as the the old creed says, one day judge the living and the dead, those who know him and those who don't know him will all stand before him and give an accounting of their life. If you don't really believe that, what in the world would motivate you to live counterintuitively? And in particular, if you were facing challenges, painful challenges, that the scriptures would tell you to endure. Why in the world would you do that if you didn't really believe, if you couldn't really embrace who Jesus said he was? Today we continue our study in 2 Corinthians. 
It's a year-long study here at Prism Church. We're in the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. That The first six verses were read today. And the Apostle Paul is going to drop something into our world that should give us a ray of hope in difficult times. He's going to tell us what he does and how he avoids discouragement, how he avoids giving up. He's going to talk to us about difficult times, and Paul knew something about difficult times. This was not a person who was living a very comfortable life as the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a person who was threatened with death regularly, was actually had his life uh, almost taken from him a number of times. And not just by people who were persecuting him. This is a guy by life's circumstances under God's providential control ended up in a shipwreck and spent a day and a night in the sea. And yet he continued to pursue his calling. This is a a man who committed himself to singleness and not just singleness, committed himself to celibate singleness. Not a requirement for all pastors, thank the Lord. Uh, You can get married. That's what I'm excited to tell you. Uh, But at the same time, in Paul's case, he said this is what is the best thing for my ministry. And it is clear that the scriptures say that if you are not married, you cannot engage in sexual activity. So for him, it was a lifetime commitment to, to moral purity. And that has its suffering moments too. This is not somebody who is... Uh, unaware. This is not somebody who is inexperienced with the kind of difficulties that you and I might face. And yet in the midst of that, he will give us insight into the why and how of his ability not to lose heart in the midst of such intense struggles. He has three things that I want to unpack from these six verses today. And I love the way that this particular section of scripture has kind of broken itself out. We'll, we'll get our points from the first three verses, but the the verses four through six will actually kind of supplement and help us to see more clearly what Paul is actually saying because his words are loaded. The first of the three things Paul would ask us is if you're battling discouragement, what you need to do and what he does is meditates on God's mercy. See, in verse one of second Corinthians four, Paul writes, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, here's, here is the sum total of what he had just said in the previous chapter. Last week, you can listen to our podcast and hear the sermon if you didn't get a chance to hear it. Uh, we're, we're talking about a gospel that is God's pursuit of us. He loves us. He comes after us. In Paul's case, this was absolutely his experience. He was persecuting the church, and God came to him and said, you're my chosen instrument for reaching the Gentiles And he didn't give him a chance to respond to the four spiritual laws. He just knocked him on his back and said, you'll get your sight back when you you give. And this was Paul's entrance into the Christian faith. So Paul, of all people, knew that his entrance, not only into being a Christian and somebody who could walk with Jesus, but even the opportunity, the work he was given to do was a gift from God. It was by mercy. Last week, he said... Because I have this hope in Christ, I'm bold. This week, he says, because we receive this by mercy, we can persevere. This is an important passage for all of us. What Paul is saying is step one in persevering 
is meditating on the fact that everything you have in this life is by mercy. You may be, as some are, in an amazingly difficult workspace. You're vocationally right now in a job you do not like with a supervisor that you cannot stand. And on a day-to-day basis, you may have to dig very deep into the resources of your heart to say, how can I have a good attitude about this? The Apostle Paul would say, a key to that is to remember that you have your job by the mercy of God. You don't deserve your job. It's not anything that you are owed by God. And he would say, drawing upon gratitude for all that God has done for us will significantly improve the way we perceive not just that, but other situations in life where we find ourselves complaining. And this is something that I'm really an expert at. Um, I'm not a, I'm not really a world-class expert at anything, but like being a struggling Christian. And so I, I can give you some insight into the fact that when I start to really complain and whine and feel like life is difficult, it is generally because I have forgotten all of the mercies of God to me. And so one of the most effective things I can do is close my eyes, get my cup of coffee, and start to think about, okay, how many different ways has God been good to me? And not just that, knowing God's mercy in the past enables me to look at even difficult situations and say, you know, the difficult circumstances I've had in the past have often been for good purposes. So that quiet reflection is what enables us to not lose heart. This is an important passage for churches, particularly churches that are planting themselves in a community. Uh, There are many opportunities to lose heart. Some of you have been with PRISM for the last four and a half years, and there have been many a time where we showed up, particularly in the first year or two, and there might have been a half a dozen of us here and then the band on stage, and you kind of think, wow, this isn't really what I thought I signed up for. This is a lot more difficult. Or why is it that we're always, you know, facing financial challenges? I mean, goodness gracious. Or there, there are just so many times where if you're at a part of a church that's starting, you might say, this is really not worth it. I'm going to go to the church that's already more developed and requires less effort and requires less stress. I know as a pastor, you know, it can be exhausting for Brooks, myself, um, the other members of our team, Tammy and Duncan, and, uh, and, and, and Shelly and Dean, uh, we're, we're all thinking to ourselves, you know, this is, we, it takes effort for us to go, the ministry that we have here is by the mercy of God. It's a, it's a great opportunity to focus on what Jesus has done for us. It's precisely because we've been saved by grace that we continue to reach out to others with mercy, even when it's challenging. Sam Storms has written a fantastic commentary on 2 Corinthians, and he says this, can you look at everything in your life and honestly say it was by the mercy of God? If not, you are a likely candidate either for arrogant boasting or for discouragement and the disheartening frustration that breeds bitterness and resentment. Mercy is medicine for the discouraged soul. The recommended dosage is daily. Paul reiterates that his salvation and his apostleship were gifts from God, not earned or deserved in any way. And he reminds the Corinthians what he wrote to them in his first letter. You didn't pursue God. He pursued you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he'd written them previously. What do you have that you did not receive? 
If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Mercy is what would compel the skills team from Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church to either raise their support or pay out of their own pocket to fly to California to serve us for a week. It's the only thing that would make somebody do something quite that radical and foolish to give a week of their vacation time to come and help a little church in California. I I can tell you that Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church's influence is felt all over the globe. I am a byproduct of the ministry of Seven Rivers as their pastor is a really, really important mentor in my life. And Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church is now playing a part because of the mercy of God that's been extended to their community, to their pastor, to their staff, some of whom on their staff are the dearest of Carolyn's and my friends. Paul says, you know, I get discouraged sometimes. I face difficulties. But the the key to maintaining an endurance is to remember that all that we have is by the mercy of God. Paul transitions to some other ways that distinguish his ministry because you have to understand that he was dealing with some people within the context of the Corinthian church that were saying Paul's ministry was invalid. And so Paul is now going to, by contrast, in verse 2, give us some perspectives on others in ministry that tell us something about how he continues to endure in the struggle of life. At first, he says, if you're battling discouragement, meditate on God's mercy. He would say, if you're battling discouragement, rest in God's rule. Verse 2, the first part of verse 2 of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 says, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Now, you might think, well, what does this have to do with discouragement? Well, see, in Paul's case, he was saying, we're not going to do anything shady to validate our ministry. We're not going to do anything that would cause anybody to question our motives about what we do. We're not going to do anything underhanded. We're not going to do anything that would be grossly dissatisfying to Christ. And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, in, in the case of ministry, it is so often a temptation to incorporate methodology that seems really wise in the business culture or perhaps is just the way of the world, and you incorporate that into church life to try to make things like work better or make you feel like you're making more progress. In Paul's case, he was working against some people whose primary means of manipulating people was through abuse or, for, or, or through false claims of prophetic utterance. These methods of pretending or claiming a superior connection to God are also the contemporary tools for manipulation and the trade tools for the Christian underhanded. These are the activities of those who would attach man-made schemes and philosophies to ministry so that they could produce even better results. You've heard this week, Creflo Dollar trying to raise $86 million to buy his jet. This was a disgrace to the Christian church. Now, 
if you want to give them credit, they decided after the outrage that followed nationally that they're no longer going to raise millions and millions of dollars and Creflo is going to fly coach, as a matter of fact. I mean, that's how strong the pushback was for this. But they legitimately, this is a screen grab from the, the Creflo Dollar website, the, the Project G50 campaign. I mean, they literally were trying to raise tens of millions of dollars to buy a jet. Well, Paul would say, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Charlatans have taken advantage of weak and vulnerable people posing as ministers since the beginning of the faith 2,000 years ago. It doesn't invalidate the truth of the gospel any more today than it did in biblical times. There's always going to be somebody who twists and turns Christianity into some kind of profit-making business. Paul's insistence is that God is doing the work and not him. When he says we're not going to use these, these, these really poor techniques or disgraceful, underhanded ways He's contrasting himself with others in ministry, and he's saying, what we're going to do is rely on the fact that God is sovereign. We don't have to do anything tricky. We don't have to make it more entertaining than the group next to us. We don't have to do anything but what God's word has called us to do, and we're going to rest in this rule. We're going to rest in his strength. We're going to rest in the fact that his method is very different oftentimes than the world and the worlds around us. And Paul's reaffirming his commitment and argument that his ministry is valid, which it was being challenged as invalid, because it produced conversion in them and without all the frills that they now all of a sudden are saying they need. I, I, I hearken back to another mention from his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He writes these Corinthians believers and he says this. Now, this was his previous address to them. And when I came to you, brothers, did, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now here's the key. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul, because of his own experience in conversion, knew that it was only by the mercy of God that he had the veil of blindness removed from his eyes. And Paul goes on to even elaborate in today's passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul's even reiterating once again that God is the one who ultimately frees people. He's the one who ultimately helps people see, and he helped the Corinthians see through Paul's ministry. And Paul wasn't doing anything tricky or fancy or trendy. He was just presenting the truth to them, presenting them with an opportunity to hear the word of God, the very words of God, which was Paul's right as an apostle ordained by Jesus as such. Paul, when he said, 
I'm going to battle discouragement. I'm going to be somebody who actually uh, endures and, and, and suffers well. And, and I'm not going to lose heart. I'm going to do that by meditating on God's mercy. I'm going to do that by resting in the fact that God's methodology is effective. His word is going to achieve that which it is designed to do. And that's really the third thing that Paul is going to get to here. Not only resting in God's rule and meditating on God's mercy, one of the ways Paul's succeeding in ministry by his definition of faithfulness is deferring to God's declarations. So he was going to say, this, this is a shifty way some people operate. They use and manipulate God. But then he goes on to say in verse 3, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul refers to his own teachings, let alone the Old Testament, as the word of God. And you think, that is really bold, isn't it? I mean, if I got up in front of you, wouldn't you like leave immediately? I hope you would if I said that my words were the very words of God. Well, this is the teaching of the New Testament is that these apostles of Jesus were endowed with an apostolic authority, a prophetic authority that is akin to the prophets of the Old Testament. Paul was aware of this authority, as was Peter and John, all of whom have written New Testament letters and written gospels. These are people who are going to say and speak the truth as God has showed that to them. You say, well, I have a difficult time believing that Paul is speaking with that type of authority. Well, join the club. So were the Corinthians. Now that these guys had come in, and as early as the first and second century, we were going, hey, you know what? We don't think Paul's speaking with God's authority. So the wave of people over the last century of our lives who said, you know what? You can't count on God's word. Paul was this, and Paul was that. This is nothing new. This is 2,000 years old. This is what they were saying in Corinth. You can't depend on this guy. He's speaking the word of God. Wow, this guy really thinks a lot of himself, doesn't he? Paul's whole argument to the Corinthians is the proof's in the pudding, friends. I'm telling you, I'm not deserving of anything. I didn't do anything that was fancy. I told you Jesus was alive. You believed he changed your life. There we are. And now what we're saying is, is that Paul's coming in and directing them. And as he was correcting them, they were giving all this pushback. Oh, no, you're not going to tell us how we're supposed to live now, are you, Paul? You're not going to tell us that we can't have affairs in the church, are you? No, you're not going to tell us we can't get drunk during communion, are you? This can't be God's word coming from this guy because it's really getting up in my kitchen. This is what happens today. I feel this. There are times where I read the scriptures and I go, oh, boy. And I go, this is, but what choice do I have? I can make up my own set of rules and really, this is where the rubber hits the road in enlightened Western culture. Since the enlightenment of the 17th, 18th, 19th century, and in particular over the last hundred and a half years, 150 years of Christian theological progressivism, there has been an attempt to say we can't trust Scripture because science has made it very clear that these people are clearly delusional. So let me give you a couple of for instance. Uh, over the last hundred years, there have been many mainline Christians, so-called Christian denominations, that have said that the bodily resurrection of Jesus never happened. That Jesus Christ 
did not physically come back to life. That was metaphoric. Somebody hid the body, or this was just how they expressed themselves at that time. The historic Jesus of Nazareth is as dead as you could be. His bones have probably turned to dirt and dust, and he no longer exists physically. He exists kind of like we, the spirit of Abraham Lincoln engulfs Springfield, Illinois. You know, it's, it's just Abe is everywhere. The pennies are on the signs, and, you know, you just kind of sort of feel like this is Abraham Lincoln country. They have monuments and statues, and the spirit of Abe lives. And so Christian liberalism for the last 150 years has said the same thing. You know, in many ways, we don't believe in a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now you say, okay, well, that's fine. I don't know why they would still have to feel like they had to call themselves Christians. But over time, they found themselves having nobody coming to the church. Over the last hundred years, most of those mainline denominations that have abandoned a biblical perspective on theology in the world have seen people stop coming. They thought if they could just adapt these things, the culture would stop being offended. People would stop going, those silly religious people you know, they, they still believe in a God who does supernatural miracles or, or like a Jeffersonian Bible. This would be a theological deism where we're going to just extract out anything that just obviously is a bunch of really unenlightened people writing what they experienced. And so the net result has been not a, a, a society that has said, you know what, now that those religious churches, those mainline denominations, now that those churches are 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 denying this reality of the resurrection, um, what we're going to do is see, we, we're going to all start going to church. It hasn't happened like that. In fact, logically, most people in culture would say, why would I go someplace to sing songs to a guy who's been dead for 2,000 years? He can't hear me. I mean, there's a point at which they go, why are we singing worship songs? We're singing songs and praising a guy. If he isn't alive, do you know how foolish we all look? I mean, no wonder the culture would probably laugh at us. If Jesus isn't really alive, we're in here singing tunes to him as if he's like up there going, I really enjoy this. Now, he is alive and we celebrate that. We'll celebrate that in two weeks on Easter, which is exactly why we sing praises to him because we know he can hear them. He can receive them. This we know, not just from our own experience, but because of the testimony of scripture. We know that Jesus has saved us and rescued us, and therefore we're committed to apostolic authority. And Paul is saying, we're not going to twist and distort God's word. This past week, another denomination, another really big church in San Francisco have decided to redefine marriage, and uh, that is their American right to do so. The redefinition of marriage that they've given is not a quote-unquote biblical definition of marriage. Now, you've got to decide at this point in culture, are we going to let the scriptures frame what we do? Or are we going to say, culture, if we can just adapt this, then everybody will all of a sudden want to start coming. And I would tell you that the object of our time together, the object of Paul's commitment to endure has to be, we're going to let scripture be our guide. And at times, that is going to call us to counterintuitive living. It's not all that dissimilar to what life was like when I was doing youth ministry. Uh, We did a lot of exciting, fun things. 
had a student center and went to camps and did ski trips and kids from all over the city would come, hundreds of them. And then we talked to them about how Jesus wants them to avoid having sex until they're married. Within the herd, people didn't really want to be restricted. They saw that as, uh, as actually intrusive. But in reality, God's word is not designed to make our lives miserable. You can know as an adult, you can look back and say how, how important it would be for a teenage girl to be protected from, you know, guys. I got a teenage girl, a college student. I can tell you, I'm really grateful that her boyfriend was raised in church and has a really strong sense of where the boundaries are. And so you get, you get an appreciation for the fact that God's commands are designed to protect us and to provide for us, not just to make us miserable and restrict us, but in reality, you have to be able to trust Jesus to do that. In all areas of life, you have to be able to say, I'm going to defer to what his word says. His word being the prophetic teachings of those who walked with him and actually encountered the risen Christ. This is the kind of church prism is committed to following Jesus as described in the scriptures. Some contemporary Christian authors have really done exactly what Paul's contemporaries were doing. They, they don't want the church to become quote unquote irrelevant, but our goal is not to do that which would make us relevant. It's to do what Paul was saying in verses five and six of our passage today. First Corinthians, second Corinthians chapter four, verses five and six, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our message is that if you want to know God and presuming as I do, as believers at PRISM do, and many churches who are committed to the authority of God's word do, that Jesus is alive, we're telling you, you don't have to continue looking all over the planet for God. You can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And the good news is he likes you a lot. When you look into the face of Jesus, you see warmth. There's no need to manufacture some type of uh, counter argument to the fact that God's holy and I'm not. He's saying, yeah, I'm holy. You're not. I'm going to die for your sins. You're not going to have to worry about that anymore. Just come close to me, and then we'll work on you becoming somebody who reflects my character in your life. We no longer have to fear the judgment of God once somebody comes into contact with Jesus. But in so many ways, God's word is commanding to do commanding us to do things that are counterintuitive, that are going to swim against the current of both culture and our own sinful nature. And this is an important place to make sure we are clear. Because if we don't have a discussion where our basic agreement is that we are all broken, we are all by nature sinful and rebellious, if that isn't the agreement if that isn't the place where we're all starting this discussion, we're going to end up in very different places and we're going to read scripture very differently. 
If, if you don't think you need forgiveness, then, you, then the idea of Jesus dying for you doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it actually can be offensive. If you don't think that your natural perception on everything from human sexuality to relationships to business to money, that those things are kind of twisted and selfish and inwardly focused instead of outwardly focused on others and God, then we are going to discuss ethics very differently. We're going to see them very differently. As believers in Jesus, we are saying we are going to read everything through the gospel of Jesus, that he died for us, which implies that we needed dying for, which strongly implies that we were too broken to be able to actually pursue him on our own, and that he has come to rescue us. And it's going to require us at times, and a lot of the time, to abandon any sense we have that, you know, I can understand this. We're going to have to do what Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. See, even Solomon, thousands of years ago, is saying, I have to trust God. My nature is selfish, and I'm going to do what I think is best for me, and at times that's going to be absolutely destructive to me. This is the battle we all face in life. Discouragement comes when we no longer want to look at the mercies of God to work our way through the difficulties of a particular given day. The life that we live encourages and can be discouraging if we start to think we've got to sort of twist and distort God's word or we've got to start to do things in a way that are maybe just slightly unethical to get ahead because that's the way of this world instead of resting in God's rule. And there are going to be times, increasingly so in Western culture, where people are going to refer to you or to me if we're going to be followers of Jesus and his word is just foolish. And it's not the first time it's happened to Christians. As a matter of fact, it's happened to Christians in every era since Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's nothing new. What you're signing up for by being a follower of Jesus is at times to take the abuse that Jesus took. How will you endure? Paul's saying, in spite of the fact that I am being roundly beaten and criticized and manipulated and pressured, and and on top of that, I've got an illness and I ended up at sea, so even life circumstances stink to high heaven. And, 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 you know, he's saying, in spite of all that, I've not lost heart because he's meditating on mercy. Because Paul is resting in God's rule. Because Paul is deferring to God's declarations. A buddy of mine here in the church has done these mini triathlons. Just the thought of a mini triathlon gives me a heart attack. Um, a full-blown triathlon like the Ironman triathlon is uh, unbelievable. You bike over 100 miles. You swim a couple of miles. That's the first thing. And then you run a marathon on top of that. And you have to do it all within 17 hours or you just don't get to finish. 
I was introduced to this sport in 1982 when Wide World of Sports featured uh, a, a piece of um, uh, a sports piece on uh, the Ironman uh, World Championships, which take place in Hawaii every year. And this student from Southern California, she just graduated from one of the UC schools, and uh, her name was Julie Moss. And Julie uh, was surprising everybody because it was her first triathlon. She was winning. And with a mile to go, her body started to collapse. And in this ABC special, which you can watch online later, just look up Julie Moss, and you can see it's just the saddest thing in the world. Her whole body is shutting down, and she's folding. She looks like a baby deer that's born. Her legs are just kind of flopping all over the place. And she inevitably had to crawl to the finish line, and just yards from the finish line, the young woman who was trailing her passed her and won. Heartbreaking. It was awful. But in spite of the fact that she didn't win, she was the second person inducted into the Iron Man Hall of Fame. And Julie Moss talks about what kept her going. She said, at each low point, I seemed to find a way to fight through the nagging sensation to give in to the discomfort. A hidden strength in me was making its presence known. I'd never been in a situation remotely close to this. And the surprising thing to me to this day was my willingness to stay right in the moment. I never thought of quitting. I just kept trying to give my body what it needed to keep going forward. Each time I dug deep, I found some small reserve of energy. For the Christian, we don't have to guess what that is. We have been given by Paul a gift to say, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're feeling like giving up, there are some things that you can do. You can meditate on how good God has been to you. You can purposefully recount, itemize them if you have to, all the ways that he's blessed you. And you can also say and, re- and meditate on the reality that God has always come through. He's a good God and he's powerful. And then you can cling to his word on those days when you feel like giving up and you think this isn't working and you have to know the promises of God to be able to say, I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ my Lord, Romans 8. You have to know God's word. You have to familiarize yourself with the places where he's promised so that you can trust in him with all of your heart and not rely on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. Let's pray to that end this morning, shall we? Father, today we're grateful that you love us. And so we, we start the process of endurance today by reminding ourselves and praying together, thanking you for all of your mercies. You have been exceedingly kind to us. I pray, Father, also that you would help us to trust you.